0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how UA student filmmakers overcame some big challenges to finish their movies for this year's I Dream in Widescreen. Did you ever spend a summer evening enjoying a film at a drive-in Christy Shiel shares some thoughts on the mix of community and chaos that could only be had there. And enjoy a radio drama presented by the Rogue Theater called Desiree's Baby, based on a short story by Kate Chopin about family, race, and misunderstanding. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Each year, the University of Arizona School of Theater, Film, and Television presents a short film showcase called I Dream in Widescreen. It's a chance for an audience to see creations by students in the UA Bachelor of Fine Arts program who are also competing for awards, distribution deals, and the chance to be shown at festivals around the world. These films had all been shot but not completed when the U of A campus closed in March because of COVID-19. When all seemed lost, help arrived via the internet. Scott Weber is a sound mixer and recording specialist with his own studio in Burbank, who has won Emmys for his work on the series Lost and Westworld. His son John is a graduate of the University of Arizona, and Weber has guest lectured to the film students before. So, he offered to lend his time and expertise to help all 17 of the filmmakers get their movies done working remotely.
1: I started thinking of it, um, that this might be a really good opportunity, not only just to physically get the work done, but we could turn it into a learning experience, sort of more of a mentorship for some of the kids. I'm also an adjunct professor at a, um, at a school here in L.A. and teach sound. We had also um, simultaneously been having to do distance learning, so I had a sort of Zoom set up at my studio at home. I enjoy working with students because I can see um, a lot of them have um, a hunger. They want to learn. So what we did, we, um, we ended up scheduling time with each of the students. So they sent me their work. We set up a, a network portal where we could download and upload all their files, and they would post their work to that portal. I would download it. I would take the time to review it and take notes, and then I would schedule a, a conference with each of them.
0: Did working with these young filmmakers take you back to your inspiration to get into the industry? Why do you work in uh, making films today?
1: Like a lot of um, audio professionals, I started in the music business. So I I was a musician myself and, of course, was intrigued with recording. And so I sort of transitioned over the course of um, a few years of my career from doing music recording to doing more post-production sort of stuff. I think the first TV show I mixed was um, The Tracey Ullman Show, the, the first round.
0: <laughs> That's where The Simpsons originated.
1: That's correct. I mixed the original Simpsons. Part of The Tracey Ullman Show, we'd mix The Simpsons short, and then the next day we'd mix the show.
2: <laughs> so that
1: that was something that kicked me into wanting to do more of this post-production thing as opposed to just music.
0: Filmmaker Roxana Denise Stevens-Ibarra received her Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in May, and continues to study music and music education at the University of Arizona, while working on the television crew at Arizona Public Media. The campus closure in March did not lessen her resolve to finish her film.
3: Who doesn't like you? Hola, hermosa. Hey.
4: ¿Cómo te llamas?
3: It depends. Who's asking? Challenge. Oh yeah, I like our new car. Our new car? Our new car. Hoy también chicas. So my film name is Tesoro, um, Treasure in English and it can be an aim also so that's kind of cool, you know, including uh, directing, writing, um, acting in it, editing, composing, performing, sound designing, um, wardrobe design, um, makeup design.
0: Well, you also face the challenge of recreating a different time period in your film. So, why did you choose the era that you chose to flash back to? And what kind of personal meaning does that have for you?
3: I primarily chose this era and um, really focused on it because of my grandparents. Um, growing up, I you know, would get an earful every time I'd to go to a family event of them speaking about, oh, um, in the 60s, I met um, Louis Armstrong and Marilyn Monroe, and Audrey Hepburn, um, only because they were a part of the Latino community that, you know, partook in radio. Um, They got to meet all of these uh, upcoming stars through, um, you know, unfortunately, (laughs) racism. They bonded. Uh, My tata was um, a Mexican uh, and bilingual radio host, and Louis Armstrong came um, along to, you know, do a performance, and no hotels at the time wanted to take him in because he was African-American and people were racist. So my tata uh, housed him, and they became very good friends. And I was just so fascinated with that time, especially because my other grandfather, my tata, he was working at a farm in California and sending money to his family and two very different upbringings. But both were extremely um, sort of romanticizing, this, you know, time of their youth. And I just couldn't help but be fascinated with it, you know, my entire life.
0: Well, you have now graduated, you've completed this film, and it's going to be out there for people to see. Are you going to make another movie?
3: I really want to. (laughs) Right now, I'm looking um, to make a documentary um, with a few of my friends, um, some of the crew from Tesoro, and um, hopefully uh, bring light to a current um, social injustice that's happening on the border. So. That is uh, my next project.
0: Filmmaker Zach LaVorn also earned his BFA this year through the UA School of Theater, Film, and Television. His student film is called Iris, and it's set in a dystopian, not too distant future. It tells one man's story about trying to protect his identity in a world of constant surveillance.
5: Good morning, Henry. It is your 25th birthday, the day of the melding. Your mother will be coming for the occasion. I have found 22 potential objectives to prepare for this evening. Shall we begin? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, the most substantial inspiration behind Iris was the original Twilight Zone series. Especially, there's an episode called Number 12 Looks Just Like You. And that episode really deals with themes of assimilation in a society that wants certain things out of their citizens. And that was an idea that I really loved. It kind of led to this theme of control and the way that people could be controlled within a society. And along with my love for Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, which is my favorite horror movie of all time, um, because it kind of has this distinguishing sense of dread throughout it, and I wanted to try to replicate that, even though I knew that, you know, Stanley Kubrick's a genius, so I kind of, I don't know if I was going to get there all the way, but definitely it was the, the thought that counted.
0: Tell us about your choice to shoot in mostly black and white.
5: The main reason I did it was for narrative clarity. Because I was editing the film, and I was really worried that people weren't going to understand um, the idea of the green eye. Because in the film, there is a very important element in terms of people having green eyes. And I just thought the best way to make sure everyone was totally on board and totally would understand what was happening is if I made everything else black and white and just had the green be the color that everyone sees. And the inspiration also behind that was used in uh, Schindler's List. And I did see that movie, and I thought, that why don't I do that kind of spot of color thing? And it all just kind of happened from there. And I talked to my professor about the idea, and she loved it. So I moved forward with it.
0: Well, at the end of the process, did it make you want to make more movies?
5: Uh, Totally. At least the thing that I know about myself, and the reason I know that I want to make films is because after every single one, I'm always ready for the next project and doing it all through high school and now all through college. It's not something I ever got sick of. Every single time I am making a project, it's, it can be grueling. You know, it's something that it's a lot of work and it's a lot of sleepless nights, just worrying if, you know, the thing that you've spent hours upon hours of making is any good, but I just keep coming back. And I think it's, it's definitely the thing that I want to do for the rest of my life.
0: This year, you can support these student filmmakers without leaving home. The 2020 edition of I Dream and Widescreen, featuring 14 films by 17 artists, will be presented on YouTube next weekend, Saturday and Sunday, August 8th and 9th. This two-day digital film festival also features a series of conversations with industry luminaries who are all alumni of the UA School of Theater, Film, and Television. For a complete schedule, There's a link on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. There was a time in Tucson when outdoor movie screens outnumbered the ones that were indoors, and actually watching a movie was sometimes less important than the social experience of being there. When the De Anza drive-in went dark in 2009, it signaled the end of the drive-in era in Tucson. There are still a few dozen functional drive-in theaters scattered across the country, and some of them are making a comeback during the pandemic. Now with a fond look back at what was, here is film essayist Chris DeShiel.
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. The management of this drive-in theater is happy to announce you can enjoy your favorite form of movie entertainment regardless of rain. Now you can keep your windshield clear and dry with a drizzle guard.
4: The drive-in movie, that uniquely American phenomenon, is now practically extinct. As film trends go, its history was brief. Although the first one was built in 1933, drive-in theaters really caught on after World War II, which is when the country shifted to a way of life based on the automobile. I think the main reason to go to a drive-in wasn't just a movie, but the fun of the experience. It was the thing to do in groups, families, or friends. You weren't there to see serious dramas that took a lot of thought. No art films or films with subtitles. People would wander over to the snack bar to get popcorn, candy, or drinks. It was rare to actually sit still and watch the entire movie.
1: Why don't you try a juicy good hot dog? Mmm, delicious. Show starts in four minutes.
4: I think kids were particularly awestruck by the drive-in. I remember my family driving down a highway on vacation somewhere, and I would see a movie showing in a big field nearby. I wanted the car to just pull over so we could watch for a few minutes, even without the sound. There was something hypnotic about that big flickering color image happening right there outdoors. The first Tucson Drive-In appeared in 1940. It was near 6th Avenue in Ajo, and it was called, prosaically enough, the Tucson Drive-In. It had concrete speakers built into the floor of the lot. A spokesman promoting the new theater said it would be especially useful for sick people who could come and see the film in their pajamas or a dressing gown. People with coughs would not annoy the other guests. The Tucson Drive-In was ahead of its time, but it closed in 1942, a victim of the war with its gas rationing and the halt in domestic car production. The first post-war Tucson Drive-In was the Midway, built in 1948 on Speedway between Columbus and Swan. Next year, saw the Rodeo Drive-In on the Nogales Highway, followed by the Biltmore off Miracle Mile. Then came the boom in the 1950s. Two local businessmen, Wesley Becker and Hugh Downs, not the TV personality, opened the Cactus on Alvernon near 22nd, and then they built three more, the Fiesta, the Prince, and the Apache, and eventually another one farther south called the 22nd Street Theater. They ended up buying almost all the others in town, too, so that Downs and Becker had a virtual monopoly on local drive-ins. Ewart Edwards, a longtime local manager, told the story of a John Wayne Western opening at the Midway in the 60s. They brought in some scenery and some actors from the old Tucson studios to perform a shootout before the show. Unfortunately, there were a lot of pigeons roosting behind the screen. When the guns went off, the pigeons all flew out and pelted the performers in the cars with poop. The owners had the luxury of showing different kinds of movies at different theaters, and a random sampling from movie ads can give you a taste of that. One summer weekend in 1958, for instance, the Cactus was showing Kirk Douglas in The Vikings, while The Prince, on Prince and Campbell, featured Walt Disney's Peter Pan. Meanwhile, down on the Benson Highway, the Apache was showing the kind of thing we tend to associate with drive-ins. The Mad Magician with Vincent Price and the Giant Claw. It is extraterrestrial comes
0: from outer space, from some godforsaken antimatter galaxy, millions and millions of light years from the Earth.
4: Jump ahead 10 years, and you see a snapshot of the 60s. The Green Beret playing at the Midway, while James Coburn is at the 22nd Street Theater with the President's Analyst. But after that, a midnight show, The Crawling Hand.
1: You'll experience a new dimension in motion picture thrills when you see the crawling hand
4: The decline started in the 1970s as a boom in regular theaters started to crowd the drive-ins out. The home video revolution had a lot to do with it, too. Why go sweat in your car when you can just watch what you want in your living room? But I think also that the American romance with the car finally faded. It just wasn't a novelty anymore. In the 1970s, almost all the Tucson drive-ins closed down, one by one. The De Anza Company had bought up the Downs-Becker Theatres, and the cactus became the De Anza, our last drive-in. It was like the end of childhood, inevitable but sad just the same. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Scheele. Please be aware the
0: following dramatic presentation is set in American history and contains references to racism and slavery. And now a visit to the Theatre of Imagination for Rogue Radio. Our play, Desiree's Baby, by Kate Chopin, is adapted by Christopher Johnson from the 1893 short story. Join us now in the Antebellum South as three members of a prosperous Louisiana family welcome their newest arrival, a baby boy.
6: Desiree's Baby by Kate Chopin. It made
7: me laugh to think of Desiree with a baby. Why, it seemed but yesterday that Desiree was little more than a baby herself when my husband found her lying
6: asleep in the shadow of the big stone pillar. The prevailing belief was that I had been purposely left there by a party of Texans whose canvas-covered wagon had recently crossed the ferry just below the plantation. In time, I abandoned
7: every speculation but the one, that Desiree had been sent to us by a beneficent providence to be the child of my affection, seeing that I was without a child of the flesh. She grew to be...
2: Beautiful and gentle, affectionate and sincere.
7: And so it was no great wonder when she stood one day against the stone pillar in whose shadow she had lain asleep eighteen years before, that Armand Aubigny, riding by and seeing her there, fell in love.
6: That was the way all the Aubignys fell in love, as if struck by a pistol shot.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The wonder was that I had not loved her before, for I had known her since my father brought me home from Paris, a boy of eight, after my mother died there.
6: The passion that awoke in Armand that day swept along like like an avalanche, or like a prairie fire, or like anything that drives headlong over all obstacles. On the eve of their engagement,
7: my husband grew practical and wanted things well considered. That is, the girl's obscure origin. Armand was reminded that she
6: was nameless.
2: Tell me now, what does it matter about a name when I could give her one of the oldest and proudest in Louisiana?
6: And so he did.
7: I had not seen Desiree and the baby for four weeks. When I reached La Bride Plantation, I shuddered at the sight of it, as I always did. It was a sad-looking place, which for many years had not known the gentle presence of a mistress, old Monsieur Aubigny, having married and buried his wife in France. Young Armand's rule was a strict one, and under it his slaves had forgotten how to be gay, as they had been during the old
6: master's lifetime. Mamma, look! Oh, this is not the baby. <laughs> I knew you would be astonished at the way he has grown. The little cochon de lait. Look at his legs, mamma, and his hands and fingernails. Real fingernails. Zandrine had to cut them this morning. Oh, and the way he cries. Armand heard him the other day as far away as La Blanche's cabin. I lifted the child then and walked with it over to the window that was lightest. I
7: scanned the baby narrowly, then looked as searchingly at the yellow nursewoman's Zandrine, whose face was turned to gaze across the fields. Yes,
6: the child has grown, has changed. What does Armand say? Oh, Armand is the proudest father in the parish, I believe, chiefly, because it is a boy to bear his name, though he says not. That he would have loved a girl as well, but I know it isn't true. I know he says that to please me. And mamma, he hasn't punished one of them, not one of them, since baby is born. Oh, I'm so happy it frightens me.
7: (laughs) Marriage, and later the birth of his son, had softened Armand's imperious and exacting nature greatly.
2: This was what made Desiree so happy.
7: For she loved him desperately. When he frowned, she trembled. When he smiled, I asked no greater blessing of God when the baby was about three months old. Desiree awoke one day to an awful change in her husband's manner, which she dared not
6: ask him to explain. When he spoke to me, it was with averted eyes from which the old love light seemed to have gone out. He absented himself from home, when there avoided my presence and that of his child without excuse, and the very spirit of Satan seemed suddenly to take hold of him in his dealings with the slaves.' Desiree was miserable enough to die. Striving to penetrate the threatening mist I felt closing about me, I looked from my child to the nurse who stood beside him. (gasps) The blood turned
7: like ice in her veins. Armand? She called to him in a voice which must have stabbed him if he was human. Armand, look at our
6: child. What does it mean? Tell me.
2: It means that the child is not white. It means that you are not white.
7: A quick conception of all that this accusation meant nerved her with unwanted courage to deny
6: it. It is a lie. It is not true. I am white. Look at my hair. It is brown and my eyes are gray. Armand, you know they are gray. "'And my skin is fair. I mean, look at my hand. It is whiter than yours, Armand.'
7: When she again could bring herself to hold a pen in her hand,
2: she sent a despairing letter to Madame Valmond.
6: "'My mother, they tell me I am not white. Armand has told me I am not white. For God's sake, tell them it is not true.' You must know it is not true. I shall die. I must die. I cannot be so unhappy and live.
2: The answer that came was as brief.
6: My own Desiree,
7: come home to Valmont, back to your mother who loves you. Come with your child.
6: When the letter arrived, I went with it to my husband's study and laid it upon the desk before which he sat. In silence, he ran his cold eyes over the written words. Shall I go, Armand? She asked in tones sharp with agonized
7: suspense.
2: Yes, go.
6: Do you want me to go?
2: Yes, I want you to go. You are no longer welcome to my home or to my name should they ever recover from the injury you have bestowed upon them. He thought
7: Almighty God had dealt cruelly and unjustly with him and felt somehow that he was paying him back in kind when he stabbed thus into his wife's soul. Goodbye, Armand. She moaned. He did not answer her. That was his last blow at fate. Desiree took the little one from the nurse's arms with no word of explanation,
6: and, descending the steps, walked away. It was an October afternoon. The sun was just sinking.
7: Desiree had not changed the thin white garment nor the slippers which she wore. Her hair was uncovered and the sun's rays brought a golden gleam from its brown
6: meshes.
2: She did not take the broad, beaten road which led to the far-off plantation of Valmont and her mother's embrace.
6: I walked across a deserted field where the stubble bruised my tender feet so delicately shod and tore my thin gown to shreds.
2: She disappeared among the reeds and willows that grew thick along the banks of the deep, sluggish bayou. And she did not come back again.
7: Some weeks later, in the center of the smoothly swept backyard was a great bonfire. Armand sat in the wide hallway that commanded a view of the spectacle, and it was he who dealt out to a half-dozen slaves the material which kept this fire ablaze.
2: A graceful baby's cradle of willow, with all its dainty furbishings, was laid upon the pyre, which had already been fed with silk gowns, and velvet and satin ones added to these, laces too and embroideries, bonnets and gloves,
7: the last thing to go was a tiny bundle of lettuce, innocent little scribblings that Desiree had sent to him during the days of their espousal. There was the remnant of one back in the drawer from which he took them.
2: But it was not Desiree's.
7: It was part of an old letter from his mother to his father. She was thanking God
6: for the blessing of her husband's love. But above all, she wrote, Night and day, I thank the good God for having so arranged our lives that our dear Armand will never know that his mother, who adores him, belongs to the race that is cursed with the brand of slavery.
0: Desiree's Baby was adapted from the 1893 short story by Kate Chopin. It starred Carly Elizabeth Preston, Christopher Johnson, and Cynthia Meyer of the Rogue Theater, directed by Joseph McGrath. Original music by Russell Ronnebaum and Samantha Bukia. The Rogue Radio presentation was supported in part by the Arts Foundation for Tucson and Southern Arizona and Marianne Leedy. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore.